Paul says in verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Over in verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And Father, we humbly ask for your grace to be with us as we continue now in our worship by opening in your presence the word of God that your spirit has spoken forth. We pray now the ministry of your spirit would speak to us in it this morning through what you've already spoken here on these pages. And we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, those of us who have received the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation, the Bible tells us have received the right or the power to become children of God. And even as biologically, genetically, children always reflect to some degree, to a strong degree, they should, their parents, because of the genetic connection there, the Bible teaches in the same way that the divine nature of God by his spirit has been deposited into every one of our lives when we accept Jesus Christ and we become children of God. And because the divine nature of God is within us, that spiritual DNA, we might say, as the result of that, we should always seek to become and should become continuously as we yield to God's work within us, we should seek to become more and more like God. We should see that progression as his children. But what does godly living involve? Or we might say, what does it require? Well, the verses we're looking at this morning, I think, give to us some essentials to godly living. Some of the things that are connected to godly living. Again, if you remember the backdrop in our prior verses last week, it was a section giving strong caution about things that can harm God's people things that can misguide us or misdirect. And even he went so far as to say actually ruin our spiritual lives. He gave a warning we saw first of all last time regarding the dangerous condition of unhealthy spiritual workers and false teachers, how their ideas as well as their teaching in its content, as well as even their leadership style could have an influence that was not consistent with scripture nor was it consistent with the words of Jesus and teaching of Jesus himself. And so therefore, Paul said it was not helping people to become more godly. It wasn't enhancing their spiritual health. In fact, it actually was doing the opposite. It was making those under the influence of these spiritual leaders who were very unhealthy, these false teachers who were teaching things that were not correct. It was actually causing people to be produced who were more carnal. And they actually were creating, if you would, a church full of nursery-like, immature Christian babies who were selfish and rude and ungodly. He described how the result of their ministry was producing people, he said in verse 4, where the church atmosphere was filled with envy and strife and reviling, and everybody was always suspicious of what was going on, and useless wranglings. The idea is just constant friction. It was like family friction. The church was unhealthy. The spiritual believers that were there that should have been godly instead were just really becoming way more worldly in the way they acted. And he described these spiritual leaders that were unhealthy as men who were filled with pride, They'd inflated view of their own self-importance, and even sadly, he said, they were perversely using the things of God as a means of personal gain for themselves, that they thought that the things of God and pretending to be godly was a way that they could gain a following for their own ego, and even worse, gain financial enrichment as they abused God's people. He described them basically as those who pretended to be godly, but really were nothing more than just spiritual entertainers and spiritual salesmen, and using religious things as a way to really just enhance 
things for their own lives personally. And then he gave a rather strong warning in contrast, as we looked at last time from verse 6 down through the remainder of verse 10, of developing an unhealthy attachment as well as an unhealthy relationship to this thing we call money. And again, I am in no way saying such in a self-serving manner to promote my own teaching. Like others have said in times of old, I wouldn't walk across the street to listen to myself preach if I had the opportunity. But that being said, the passage in verse 6 through 10, I would say, is probably one of the most critical, fundamental teachings of Scripture for American Christians right now. And so if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to listen to what the Holy Spirit had to say to us in verses 6 through 10, because those verses are incredibly applicable to us in the American church in a country where we live in a very affluent, luxurious, very prosperous lifestyle in comparison to most of our other brothers and sisters in Dominican Republic and Haiti and Honduras and in other places in the world who love Jesus just like us, but nowhere near experience much of the financial affluence that we do. He said, as we concluded last time, just as sort of a summary of that after saying that godliness with contentment is great gain, we brought nothing into the world, start with nothing and we leave with nothing. That's we should always measure life. Having food and clothing, he said, we should learn to be content with just basic necessities to be fulfilled. But those, verse 9, who desire to be rich, he said, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which can drown men in destruction and perdition. Again, notice, those who desire to be rich, those who cannot get under control the inclination within all of our humanity to just want to live a little bit more at a higher level, a little bit more affluent, want to live and have a little bit more nicer things, that drive that can take over all of our hearts, and marketing doesn't help with that in our American culture. Verse 10, he then cautioned of the, not money being a root of evil, but the love of money, being a little bit too attached to it, enjoying it a little bit too much. He says that becomes a root in a person's life and in a society as well, to produce all kinds of evil. And then look what he says, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and then pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He describes how some Christians, even those who know and love the Lord, in an undue and unhealthy affection for money, that love for money started to eclipse their love for the Lord, their love for the kingdom of God, and how many at times had even began to stray from their spiritual bearings, perhaps no longer walking with the Lord, maybe even no longer serving the Lord. And again, Paul speaks of how this even happened from a ministry perspective. He said that that one man, he said, Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken us. A man who once served together with Paul, Paul says he no longer does because he fell in love too much with the opportunities of the world. And so he decided, Paul, that ministry thing is not for me because the world's got way better stuff out here. And this is a tragedy and a caution, something we have to all be very, very careful of in our lives. And after identifying those unhealthy, wrong ways of operating and the danger of falling prey, Paul now, as we come into our next verses, having described these risky, ruinous paths, he now gives us four authoritative commands in verse 11 and 12, and then also we'll see one in verse 20 and 21. Four authoritative commands to steer clear of error and also stay committed to remaining on the right path, on track as a man or a woman of God in our lives. We'll see those four charges for the man of God, or we might say woman of God as well, You could summarize them in four words we're going to see, flee, pursue, fight, and guard. He's going to say, flee those things that are unhealthy and dangerous, but then pursue what's good and healthy and helpful, and fight to do whatever you have to do to walk and gain spiritual victory, and also guard the precious, valuable things that God's entrusted and don't squander the very good, important things God's deposited with you. So after hearing of the wrong ways and unhealthy pursuits, Paul then says, look at it, verse 11 there in our text. He says, but you, that's a contrast idea, but you, 
O man of God. Notice, but you. In other words, in contrast to these wrong, harmful ways, Timothy, others may get entangled in such errors. It's going to happen. You're going to see it around you. But he's saying, but you can choose a different path. I almost sense him saying, Timothy, but you, because you're the man of God, you must choose a different path. You can't let yourself go down that road. Why? He calls him, oh, man of God. Now, that phrase, man of God, it's used many, many times, I believe over 70 times in the Old Testament. Moses was referred to as a man of God. David gets this title attributed to him as a man of God. Many of those who spoke prophetic messages for God in the Old Testament received this description as the man of God. It's a phrase, interestingly, though, that's only used two times in the New Testament. Both of them are in First and Second Timothy. It's a phrase that Timothy alone gets the specific title attributed to him as a young minister. And then in 2 Timothy, we get another occurrence of it more of in a general sense. But I think it would be good to ponder and to ask, what does that descriptive idea of a man of God convey? Well, I think two things specifically. I think the first idea of that phrase is simply this, to be God's man just to be God's man. In other words, he was saying to Timothy, Timothy, you're God's man in this situation, for this hour, in this given situation, for this day, God wants you to recognize you're his man and his good hand is upon you for his purpose. He's called you to this, enabled you for this, and it's time, if you would, to rise to the occasion, we might say, for such a time as this, to fulfill God's purpose. Your life, Timothy, has special value and purpose. You have been set apart to be used by the Lord, to be his soldier, to fulfill God's mission in this battle. Timothy, you're God's man. You got to know that. You got to recognize it in humility, but in recognition, you're God's man. But I think it also implies simply the idea of not just being God's man, but just to be a godly man. And in that, what I mean is basically someone just living in close relationship with God, being like God, reflecting the nature of God, being godly, and representing who God is among people around you. Moses, again, who was called a man of God, was known for a very close, intimate encounter and face-to-face -face relationship with God. David, we know in the Old Testament, is described after a man after God's own heart. And so Timothy's foremost identity was just someone who people looked at him and said, that, that, that's a person of God there, no doubt. That's not a worldly man. That is a man of God. And look, in a very corrupt environment, folks, amongst people where there is a lot of need for God, I would say that just like any good father who has a son, any good father who has a son, at some point there's a process where you have to call the man out of your son. As he progresses through his boyhood, there comes a point where you have to call the man out of the boy and help him to understand that it is time to embrace the man that he's intended to be. Well, I see Paul here basically challenging Timothy like a spiritual father figure, my son Timothy. I see Paul here challenging Timothy in that way, and he's seeking to call the man of God out of Timothy, who he knows that he's intended to be. And so in a sense, he's exhorting him, Timothy, you're meant to be the man of God. You're meant to be God's man right where you are, right in this situation and in this hour. And look, perhaps today, maybe you struggle, as we all do from time to time, with a sense of purpose or maybe even a sense of identity. And let me just say, I don't think God shows any partiality in what's available of and from God is available to all. That term man of God gets used in 2 Timothy in a very generic sense to all believers. And so I think really above all else, God's plan for you, God's plan for me is to embrace this as our identity, that that would be what our purpose is, that our identity and our purpose above all else is that we would seek to be, if you're a male, God's man that you would seek to be a godly man and that you would seek to be God's man in your particular situation, 
in this particular hour, whatever that means for you, that you're God's man in your family or that you're God's man in your job place or you're God's man for a particular role of service, you're God's man and that you'd embrace that and that you would by faith want to live up to that and that as well, that you would be, if you're a female, God's woman in this generation and that you would be God's woman in your family that you would be God's woman in your workplace or in whatever way or circle of friends or that you would be God's woman to be that representative for the Lord in that situation and that we would seek to be, if you would, that instrument to bring God's presence and God's power and God's word as his instrument, his man or his woman in the place where he has put us. And look, how our world needs God. And how our church, I mean that collectively, not this local congregation, how the church today needs a man of God, a woman of God, someone who is willing to live wholeheartedly for God, to walk with God, and to live out a godly life. But in order to do this, we cannot be passive spiritually. And it's so essential, and it's why Paul's giving these charges to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you're the man of God. You're God's man, but that's not going to happen if you're passive. You cannot be passive spiritually. You must participate. There are certain things essential, which brings us to the first of these four charges he gives to Timothy. The first thing he says to him, you, O man of God, here's the first charge, flee these things. Timothy, I've shown you in our verses above some really wrong ways to operate. Timothy, I've told you about some of the unhealthy spiritual workers, and I've cautioned you about those who got wealth and money out of priority and perspective, and it's damaged their spiritual life. And so having talked about wrong and dangerous and unhealthy things, he says, Timothy, you've got to flee these things. You've got to actively run from them. And it's interesting, that word flee that he uses is in a continuous tense. The idea is to constantly keep running from. It's not just one time you run away from it because it's something, guess what it's doing? It keeps chasing you. It's something that you can't just say, why well, turned away from it once? And you say, well, great. Well, as soon as you turn around, it's going to be right there behind you again because it's constantly around us, inundating us, and it's something that is pursuing and is going to harm us if we encounter it. So the idea is it's something we got to keep eluding constantly. We have to keep running, keep fleeing from it, keep running so that it doesn't bring you down. We have to consciously be alert, Paul's saying, to keep regularly fleeing from such temptations and error. And it was critical that Timothy understand this because he was, follow me here, a man of God not a man of the world. That's so fundamental, folks, is that you realize if you are a Christian this morning, you're not a man or a woman of the world any longer. Jesus said you're still in the world, but you're not of the world anymore. He called us out of that system. We're now God's man, God's woman, and because we are a man of God or a woman of God, part of us being a man or woman of God that we're destined to be means we have to realize There are enemy forces and temptations that are always going to be trying to bring us down, to make us, as Paul warned, conform to the patterns of the world. And so we have to always be paying attention and learn how to flee and escape those things to remain safe and effective and really on mission as a Christian so that we don't allow ourselves to be captured by the snare of the devil or to get caught up in the ways of this world and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and so that we don't become enslaved by our own sinful desires. So Paul says, Timothy, you got to flee these kind of things mentioned in those above verses that are there as a reference of numerous things to flee from. And look, the Bible tells us there are many things that we should be fleeing from. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that we need to flee, run constantly from sexual immorality. That is, any form of sexual impropriety, behavior, action, anything outside of the context of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And he says, you got to always be fleeing from it. Look, because in a sexualized culture, it's in your face 24-7. 
It's going to be chasing you down and hunting you down and exposing itself and giving opportunity and our own sinful desires and lust can cause us to struggle. So he says, you got to keep running from it. Don't be foolish. You got to flee from it. And if you're engaged in it, you really better get running from it. You better run out of it. But even if you're not, like Joseph in the Old Testament, when Potiphar made a pass at him, he didn't stand there and say, oh, Lord, please help me to resist this beautiful woman. I claim it in the name. He didn't do that. He didn't quote Bible verses. What did he do? He ran. He created as much distance practically between himself and opportunity to do what was sexually wrong. That needs to be our behavior, not rocket science. The Bible tells us make no provision for the flesh. Why? Because if you make provision, which is opportunity for the flesh, you're kidding yourself, and we're all lying to one another if you tell me you're not going to indulge it. Why do you think people who have substance abuse issues, when they genuinely want to get out of an addictive lifestyle, create strong boundaries and parameters, and they do everything they can to radically, like Jesus saying, cut your arm off, to, to radically burn bridges because they realize if there's the smallest avenue of provision, I'm weak. I'll just go right down that. And look, we have to be like that. And so he says, flee sexual morality. First Corinthians 10 says, flee idolatry. That is anything that becomes more important to us in our life than God. He says at times we got to run. We got to be assessing. Hey, is this becoming way more important in my life than God? Is it taking control of me to a greater degree? He's got to flee from that. Second Timothy chapter two, he tells Timothy there to flee youthful lusts. And there he's not talking about sexual lust. There he's just talking about those youthful desires that we all struggle with in our immaturity of our earlier days in life. Things like pride and, and pursuing this for sake of recognition and power and, and better position, just the youthful, immature desires that drive many young people. He says, look, you got to flee that stuff. You got to stay on the run from it. As a man of God or a woman of God, one of the essentials to be a godly person is we must understand this need to continually keep fleeing these temptations, these things that want to draw us down or trip us up and get us into a trap. And some of those things, let's be very candid, folks, some of those things are very evident. They're the same for all of us. A lot of them start just right here in the written word of God. But then you know as well as I do, there are also then those certain things for you as an individual Christian. And you know what your Achilles heel is. You know what your areas of weakness and your propensities are, whether it's because of past struggles or present dynamics. And, and there are certain things that you know, maybe more than the person sitting next to you or across the room from you, I've got to flee that because that tends to always chase me down. And you got to be wise and you have to do what you can to make sure you keep that distance between you and temptation. The further you are away, the better you're going to be. So he says, you got to be willing to keep constantly fleeing. That's the key to godliness. And then notice, godly living isn't just avoidance of what's not good. It's also the pursuit of what is good. Look what he says next in verse 11. Flee the wrong things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So we must also, secondly, actively pursue what's good and healthy, what's helpful to our spiritual development. That word pursue, again, is in the continuous tense. The idea is to actively chase after and to constantly keep on pursuing without ever stopping something without any end. The idea, again, if we could illustrate, we realize, right, if we want to talk about better health or good health, you can't just eat healthy one day and stop. You can't just diet one day and stop. Right? You, you have to continue to keep pursuing the good diet, the better health. You can't just do it one day. I don't understand. Why didn't I lose 20 pounds? Well, because you ate healthy one day, and the next day you went back to all the Krispy Kremes. It just, right, I mean, it's just common sense. You have to keep pursuing that good path, that good pattern. Same thing with exercise, right? 
You can't just exercise one day and then not go to the gym. You have to keep on pursuing. Even for those who do exercise regularly, you understand you can't, you can't settle for plateaus. You have to do things to push for the, the next rep or to try and go up five more pounds or ten more pounds. You have to keep pursuing constantly progression and development because that's essential for physical health, and the same is true of spiritual health to remain godly. Our Christian life, if we're going to be healthy, cannot just be defined by things that we don't do. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I flee from this, and I stay away from that. That's great, but that's only one part of the Christian life. What do you do? What are you pursuing? What are you moving towards? What are you chasing after? Again, we have to always be pursuing things as well. Paul told Timothy to help protect his walk and keep growing in spiritual health and development. He also not just had to flee, but he had to pursue certain things also. And he gives a list here of some wonderful spiritual attributes of things to pursue. The first thing he says, look at it, he says, is pursue righteousness. Now, Timothy was already in right relationship with God positionally through his faith in Jesus Christ. The idea is that when he put faith in Jesus Christ, as when all of us do, the Bible tells us that we become righteous before God through faith. We're justified. Positionally, Timothy was already righteous. His trust in Jesus when he accepted him as Savior satisfied that and gave him a righteous standing. So he's certainly not encouraging Timothy, Timothy, you got to keep doing good works and pursuing to be good and godly and, and holy because if you don't, you're not going to enter heaven. He's not telling him to pursue a righteous standing. He's telling him to pursue a righteous way of living that aligns with his righteous standing, that he would pursue what it means to live righteously and live right before God in accordance with the word of God, living right in God's sight that he would keep continually pursuing that his conduct would always be right in the sight of the Lord. Lord, is this okay with you? Is this not okay with you? Lord, is what I'm doing here something that you're pleased with or not pleased with? The idea is remaining in right relationship with God, living before God in a way that's right. And also to live righteously also means to live in right relationship with others on a human level, that we would make sure we're in right relationship according to the word of God with others. So in order to pursue righteousness, the second thing he says is you must also pursue after, he says, godliness, that is seeking to live a more godly life, a pursuit of personal godliness, to be more like God and like the one whom we worship and serve. Again, this comes back to that idea we saw earlier in the letter. Remember, Paul told Timothy, we have to be exercising ourselves towards godliness. And again, he uses that analogy there of like good spiritual routines, just like an exercise routine continuously, good spiritual routines that contribute to development of spiritual growth and health, becoming stronger in the Lord to greater and greater degrees of more godliness. He thirdly says also pursue faith. And the idea is living in trust and dependency upon the Lord in contrast to living in a way where we're scheming in the flesh and doing things by striving to make things happen in the flesh. Instead, we need to pursue a life of faith because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so even as we're saved by faith, as a Christian, we're called to walk by faith and to live in faith. We need to be willing to trust the Lord do the right things obediently according to God's word and God's spirit's leading that we're supposed to do, but also to trust and live in faith to let God work and to believe that God's going to work, to let God have room to work in situations. You know, Jesus, was he not in the gospels? He was always rebuking unbelief. And he was always very impressed with and commending those who exercised great faith. And look, this morning I would ask, are you looking for ways to pursue a greater lifestyle of faith? Are you looking for ways to live out your Christian existence by continually walking in faith rather than trying to make things happen in your own fleshly human efforts? At times, even taking steps of faith. You know, I had someone say to me one time before, a good friend back in Pennsylvania in regards to Hebrews 11, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it's just stuck with me. It was like a prophetic word from the Lord. He said, what are you doing in your life right now that really requires faith? 
And he said, are you doing anything that's requiring you to trust the Lord? Anything at all? Or are you saved and you say you're living by faith, but you basically, you really don't take any steps of faith anymore. You always got it figured out. You'll write a check for it. You got enough money for it. You know, you'll, you, you'll make it happen through the, he said, what are you doing? Are you doing anything that's requiring you to walk in faith right now? Have you taken any steps of real faith in your life? And I think that's a great reminder for us on occasion. To a degree, a Christian shouldn't be living foolishly, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. God's pleased when we're at times taking steps of faith and willing to step out and to live in faith and to walk in faith, whether that's talking to someone about Jesus for the first time or in a really long time. Sometimes it's those kind of steps of faith. Maybe it's taking another step of faith in your life, but God, help us to pursue faith. He says also pursue love, which speaks that's that agape in the Greek, the unconditional sacrificial love, where we do what's in the welfare of another person. We deny ourselves and serve whatever produces the best for another person. And so here he's saying this is part of godly living that we should always be pursuing after trying to be finding ways to actively keep demonstrating Christian, unconditional, sacrificial love to people around us. Don't stop pursuing that. Remember, Jesus said in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And he literally said the agape of many. He's talking about Christians. He's saying in the last days, the world will get so nasty and dark and corrupt. What it will do is it will start throwing a wet blanket on Christians who kind of just say, you know what? I just want to survive, do my thing, mind my business, get out of this rotten world. And Christians just kind of start cooling off and their, their love begins to diminish. Their love for people and their love for the Lord and their love for the body of Christ. And they just, and he says, part of that's because just all the wickedness, it just makes us get jaded and cynical and apathetic. And Jesus said, that's a dangerous thing, which will happen. Love will grow cold. But here, Paul says, no, we want to stay godly. Keep pursuing love. Keep looking for ways to demonstrate love. He says, also, we should pursue patience. And the term literally is perseverance or to bear up under hardship. The idea is not losing heart under hardship. That's the idea of our term there. It's not natural for any of us to hold the line when things are difficult. It's not normal for us to hang in there when things get tough or if people mistreat us to be patient or to bear up under hard times. We're tempted instead, let's just be very candid, to cave in, to just give up to get sick and tired of how things are going, to handle things wrongly. But yet we look at our Lord Jesus, and did he not endure so much? And he kept going. Mistreatment and hardship and difficulty, and yet Jesus, to the very point of the pouring out of his life, endured through and persevered and kept going even in difficulty. The idea of the word here speaks of an attitude of, we might say, Christian courage to bravely face hardship and carry on by the grace of God. You know, one commentator said of this term, the Greek term is hupomone. I know it kind of sounds like an Italian ice cream, but this, this don't let that distract you. But he said this of that term. He said, hupomone is the victorious endurance. It's the unswerving constancy of faith and serving God in spite of adversity and sufferings. It describes the virtue which one does not so much accept the experiences of life as it is they conquer the experiences of life. It's not just, oh, I guess this is just life. It's not just accepting hardship, but he says it's embracing the hardship as a part of earthly life and saying, I will, according to what Romans 8 says, be more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. Because I have his love and his help, I will conquer in this hardship. I will overcome this hardship. God wants us to keep pursuing folks as godly men and women how to overcome the hardships, how to overcome the difficulties, not to be paralyzed, but by God's help to press onward to wait on the Lord, and to overcome by his grace and help through perseverance and patient endurance. And the last thing he says to pursue is to pursue gentleness. That is that wise, proper understanding that time is being tender and sensitive 
in how we deal with people or caring with them. It's the opposite of being harsh or we might say insensitive or just bulldozing people at times just to get our way and knock anyone out of our way. That term gentleness in the original language also implies the idea of meekness or humility. And again, that was one of the key character attributes of who? Jesus, right? All authority, all power, but yet Jesus, one of the key attributes of his life is he was meek and humble and gentle in his nature. And we should seek to pursue to be more like Christ. That is like Jesus. We can be bold when needed. We know what authority is and we can exercise authority when it's right, but we also know how at times with that to couple it with a gentleness and a humility and a meekness and we're not abusing people around us. There's a, a balance of boldness and meekness mingled together like our Lord. So he says these are wonderful things we must be pursuing to be godly. And look, let me just say this morning as well, oftentimes there are so many things that we take time to pursue in this life. You know, We are pursuing so many different things. We got this pursuit going on and that pursuit, and we're chasing this and we're pursuing that goal and pursuing this thing. Look, God just says to us, you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. May your greatest focus be, he says, your primary pursuit be things like righteousness and godliness and love and gentleness and faith. You want, to, want some good pursuits, God says? Make those your chief pursuits. You can do the other pursuits too, but don't set those pursuits ahead of the greater pursuits which make you and I be the godly person he wants us to be. So Paul, as he goes on to verse 12, then says, and fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So even as fleeing wrong things is a part of godly living and pursuing good and right and healthy things is essential to godly living, Thirdly, here he says that part of godly living is also fighting hard to walk in spiritual victory. We have to be willing to fight the good fight. Now, this is very interesting that Paul's saying this to Timothy because we can tell from the Bible's description, Timothy, by nature, seemed to just be an individual who was just a little bit more passive in his nature. He just seemed to be, whether it was his own human insecurities or his temperament, someone who just was a little bit more passive and timid, where Paul seemed to be a little bit more of a type of person who was just more assertive and, and, and kind of just, you know, someone who wasn't afraid to just step in and grab the bull by the horns. And so because of that, again, Paul here, understanding Timothy's temperament, maybe to assert himself in situations, he exhorts him he's got to be willing at times for the sake of God to be a little bit assertive, even maybe to a degree aggressive, not in an unhealthy sense, but when it pertains to what's righteous in the cause of Christ, you got to fight to resist evil, and you got to fight to carry on in the midst of the battles, fight the good faith. The reality is the Christian life is something that means we're engaged in a spiritual battle, the Bible tells us. There is a spiritual war between good and evil, and there's going to be ongoing efforts of the devil, our enemy, and the forces of darkness to always try and overthrow the good things of the kingdom of God and his spirit's ministry. So as servants of the Lord, we need to know we're immersed in a battleground. They don't tell you that when they share the gospel with you. They just tell you, do you want your sins forgiven? Yeah. Do you want to go to heaven? Wow. Do you want to be drafted into a constant conflict? What does that mean? Oh, nothing. It's just against the devil. They don't tell you that part, right? You just get drafted by faith, and then you realize Ephesians 6 afterwards, now you're navigating spiritual battles. Ephesians 6 says that we don't wrestle against human forces, but principalities and rulers and powers of darkness. There's a genuine spiritual war and battles that constantly go on. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that he had to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he says, and you must endure hardship as a good soldier. It is necessary that any soldier be not only willing to fight, but they have to know how to fight, to resist enemy attack, to hold the line, 
to hold their ground, to not be overcome by the enemy trying to take territory, maybe to go rescue people that the enemy has captured as prisoners, and the same applies spiritually. There is warfare and there are battles, and the weapons of our warfare, the Bible say, is the word of God and prayer. And for that reason, I can tell you this, the devil is not dumb. He's been strategizing spiritual warfare from the Garden of Eden. So the two areas, the devil, as a Christian and as a church, that the devil is always going to try and get God's people distracted from is the word of God and prayer. The devil will gladly have Christians have parties and concerts. and I'm not, 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 He'll gladly, and, and everybody will sign up for that. But then the prayer meeting comes, and the devil goes, whoa. Don't you have something to do this afternoon? Aren't you hungry for lunch? Don't you have to do this? You can't go over that. You'll feel uncomfortable praying out loud. Don't go do that. People will laugh at you. And, and, and we, we may smirk at that. I firmly believe there is a spiritual warfare of opposition that the devil would gladly keep churches from praying, keep you from praying. Look, anytime you try and have your devotions, who's not tried to sit down you have your devotions? You could have an hour to yourself any other time, Right? But then you sit down, let me spend a little time with the Lord. Let me read his word. Let me pray. All of a sudden, the house blows up, right? <laughs> the kid's vomiting all over. The dog's chewing all your laundry. I mean, just things go crazy all of a sudden. Or you sit down and you go, that picture's crooked. And you go over, you fix the picture. And then you say, well, I ought to check the other pictures. And then half hour later, you fixed every picture in your house. And then you forgot you are even having your devotions. And so the devil understands, whether it's in these very, like, strong, harsh ways or these subtle ways, and we need to realize in the Christian faith, we have to seek to walk in faith and faithfully follow the Lord, but that means there are going to be battles, and we have to face those battles head on, those attacks of the devil and spiritual opposition, and in such times, listen, folks, we cannot cower in fear and just surrender to the spiritual attacks of the devil. We must, as Christians, at times stand, Ephesians 6, and stand up and fight, and stand for the Lord, and stand for righteousness. We can't let the devil intimidate us and take territory. We have to fight to resist what's evil and ungodly and what's wrong, whether it's trying to destroy our home or our marriage or the church or advance ungodly agendas. God refers to this Christian experience, notice, as a fight. He says, fight the good fight. There are lots of things that, that we get engaged in, and we fight over lots of things that are dumb fights, right? We fight over a lot of dumb things. We want to argue about this and express our opinion about it. And we get caught up in all these fights, and God says, there is something that's a good fight. There is a good fight that you should engage into, and you should be stern and aggressive and assertive about, and that's the things of God, our walk with the Lord, the health of the church and, and, and your family and the word of God fight against sin and anything that hinders your Christian walk. There's a time to step in and to step up and to fight and to take a stand. And perhaps this morning, something in your life or any someone, perhaps not just something, maybe someone is threatening the welfare of your Christian walk or your family's spiritual health. Or God forbid, forever times, the work of the Lord. Look, there is a time to take a stand spiritually and fight for what you know is good. And fight for what you know is right. As it aligns with the authentic Christian faith and what the Lord wants, there's a time where passiveness and surrender is utterly wrong. It displeases the Lord. And where being assertive and engaging in a fight is the righteous thing to do. Look, the battle belongs to the Lord, absolutely but we're called to be soldiers to participate in the battle and to do our part to stand for the Lord and fight against anything that threatens to harm or overthrow that which is God's will and according to the Christian faith. He says in the remainder of the verse there, Timothy, remember, you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he reminds Timothy the day that he sensed his own personal calling to salvation. He says, Timothy, Here's why I'm telling you to fight. Here's why I'm telling you, look what he says, verse 12, lay hold, take grasp of, firm grip of eternal life. And look at the two sides of salvation here. You see the divine side and the human side. To which you were called 
to eternal life. That's the divine side of salvation. God calls us. That's the divine call, God's part. And he says, and to which you confessed by making a confession in front of other witnesses. That's the human side. That's the acceptance and faith and the receiving and responding in salvation, both sides, the divine call and the human confession, confessing with our mouth Jesus is Lord. And he says, Timothy, here's why I'm telling you to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of eternal life because he says, Timothy, you know yourself that day changed your life. You know and others know, others who you've confessed this in front of, you know, Timothy, that you're now a citizen of heaven and you're called and destined for heaven so, Timothy, maybe it's hard right now. Maybe you're enduring through some difficulties. Maybe you're going through some challenging times. But, Timothy, it's in times like this, knowing your eternal destiny, you've got to take firm grip once again of eternal life and to realize, son, that it is not about earthly life. You're just a pilgrim passing through. And your life is about much more than just earthly existence. You're an eternally destined child of God, and you're the man of God called to do things for eternity. And so, Timothy, he's saying, I know you may be struggling, times may be hard, but I'm asking you, lay hold of, take firm grip once again of the eternal realities that matter most. And look for all of us, at times, just like Timothy, the most important battle in all of our lives that we have to fight through is right here. It's in our minds because we get distracted and discouraged and we lose perspective. And Paul says sometimes the good fight is to keep believing what's true when earthly experiences are challenging everything that's going on inside of our head. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Listen, so we fix our eyes, not on what's seen, earthly experiences, but what is unseen, since what is unseen, excuse me, what is seen is what's temporary, this stuff. But he says, what's unseen is eternal. I sense Paul saying, Timothy, I know it's hard. You're going through a difficult experience there. You're facing a lot of challenges and opposition right now, and, and maybe you're tired and you're weary, but Timothy, I'm telling you, once in a while, you gotta buckle down, be willing to fight, and take firm grip once again of eternity, because it's all gonna matter one day. And don't lose perspective. He's saying, get hold of your eternal perspective once again. And you know what, folks? Sometimes all of us kind of need to do that. Maybe right now in your life, you've been weary. Maybe you're going through the grinder. Maybe the best thing that you can do to fight, to carry on, is to do whatever it takes to say, you know what? I am going to fight through this process to believe by faith. I'm going to fight for what matters most. And I am going to take fresh hold once again of the eternal reality of my soul and what I'm really to be occupied with even while on this earth. Now, finally, Paul gives Timothy one more charge, and it's why I wanted to cover it in verse 20 and 21. Oh, Timothy, guard, there's our final charge, what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So he gives Timothy one more challenge, and it's this, to guard what's precious and valuable of the things of God. He says, Timothy, I'm identifying once again, and he describes, he's already talked about this a few times in the letter, these unhealthy things, he says, avoiding profane and idle babblings. The idea there is ungodly and worthless conversations or things that serve no value or purpose. That is people who say things, but they have no real spiritual benefit. They have no purpose in what, they don't really help God's people. And maybe even what they were saying, maybe it was entertaining. Maybe it was motivational. But he says, Timothy, if it's not meaningful spiritually, you just got to avoid this nonsense. Avoid this entertain me. Avoid this pep rally motivate me. Avoid That's just worthless stuff. Timothy, if it doesn't have content, 
Just avoid that stuff. And he says, especially if someone is speaking, notice, contradictions of which they're falsely trying to pass off as knowledge. That is, people who would speak or teach things that contradict sound biblical doctrine, things that would contradict what the Word of God says, manipulating what God's Word says, to try and create their own idea of Christianity that lines up with their preferences or their lifestyles or, again, abandoning, if you would, the genuine Christian faith. He says, by it, verse 21, some professing these foolish, contradictory ideas, they're straying concerning the faith. That is, people who are saying, no, well, well, we believe this, or we believe it's okay. We believe you can be a Christian and live like this. And he says, look, there are some who are going to abandon genuine Christianity, creating their own version of it, something that completely contradicts the word of God. And it's wrong, and it's erroneous. And so he says, Timothy, in light of that, what was he to do? Verse 20, he said, you've got to guard what was committed to your trust. That word committed means deposited. In other words, Timothy, God has put a deposit into your life to protect and defend and watch over valuable, important, essential things of God and his plan, and you've got to protect it. That's part of your role as God's man, as God's woman. All of us folks, to some degree, have a spiritual stewardship to be guardians in our generation of the church of the things of God. This is our generation, and we have to stand up and guard and watch over what is important to the Christian faith and not allow those who seek to contradict what's true to think that kind of straying is acceptable or that we'll endorse it or we'll embrace it. And to a greater degree, have enough backbone and courage to guard at times when those who are straying, that we don't permit them to hijack the plane like a spiritual terrorist and take everyone else on board downhill with them, but that we would have the courage to overthrow them if we're on board with them and to say, not on my watch. You're not hijacking the spiritual plane and destroying everyone else's lives just because you're wanting to go in a wrong direction. Look, in this day and age, folks, perverse and polluted times exist, and I tell you, we cannot afford to be cowardly Christians. It's not going to work. What we need to do is recognize that we have to flee what's wrong and pursue what's right and fight the good fight and guard what's good and valuable and important. Let's stand and let's pray together.